Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Last week, there was a pretty explosive report that was published by an organization called Hindenburg Research that made a lot of headlines and quite a few posts on LinkedIn. And I think there are some good discussions. I learned some things. I hope you guys did too. But there were also several things that were taken out of context. And it's one of those topics where more than one thing can be true at once. And so I really wanted to talk it out with someone and think of anyone better than Frank. Frank is the author behind the Frank on Fraud blog that is extremely popular among those of us in fraud fighting, whether you work on the banking side, the fintech side, the merchant side, really Frank on Fraud is a great go-to blog. He's also a co-founder of Point Predictive and just an all-around great guy. He's a veteran of fraud fighting on the banking and lending side of over 25 years. And I always appreciate his perspective, especially on some of these more nuanced things that come up in the news. Before going into our conversation, I just wanted to share a couple of things first, just to put in your mind before you hear Frank and I's discussion. First, I am a huge proponent on not saying company names. I really firmly believe that, especially if it's anything that hasn't been published or that I may know, or just even that maybe open secrets within our industry about specific companies, the minute a company's name is said, the story becomes about that company and not the lessons that we can learn as an industry from the situation. But once there are headlines about something, once there are public reports, I do think it's a really good opportunity to learn For those companies who aren't in the headlines, who aren't having to deal with PR fires and everything else, as well as to help you communicate with your leadership as well and say, hey, this could happen to us. This is just one more thing that could happen if we don't do X, Y, Z, or if we don't consider this or that. One other good example that came up in the last year was when PayPal disclosed on their quarterly, one of their quarterly calls that they needed to cancel 4.5 million accounts because they identified them all tied together by one core fraud attack that was taking advantage of a $10 promotion for opening a new account on Venmo and PayPal. This was a great lesson for the industry and provided a lot of conversations and a lot of talking points up to leadership because up until that point, we had known how big of a deal fake and fraudulent accounts were within the tech industry, it's really difficult to talk about them when there isn't a specific example to point to. This report was published by Hindenburg Research. Most of the time, the publication doesn't matter that much because oftentimes headlines are and articles are created by journalists that have journalistic integrity and need to quote their sources and 
really go through and verify all the facts and the information, which publication doesn't always matter as much. However, the resources and the integrity piece on their journalistic integrity does matter. However, this time, Indenberg is not a news publication. They are a short seller, and they don't shy away from the fact that their purpose of working on this investigation, they say for over two years, I don't know if that was full-time, two years, I don't think it would be, but they're very upfront that the purpose of them publishing this report was to tank the stock of Block, which Block owns Square Payment Processing, Cash App, the peer-to-peer money transfer app, as well as Afterpay, the BNPL. I don't think that you can read this report without remembering that those were the intentions behind it, especially, and Frank and I talk about this a lot, but especially the sources that they quote and the specific word choices. It's just something to keep in mind. But at the same time, if you've been in fraud for the last, especially the last three years, you know that a lot of companies, especially fintechs in the peer-to-peer money transferring space, have been hit with a lot of fraud. And there are some there's some activity that can happen using, whether it's banking or financial institution platforms, where the definition of fraud can get a little bit wonky as well, where you may consider it fraud because the funds from your organization are being transferred to another financial institution for cash out because for whatever reason, it may be easier for cyber criminals to draw money from another platform than it is from yours. Does that platform call that fraud? It's hard to know without a correlating loss, financial loss, without different factors. So there's just a lot of nuance at play from this report, as well as from my conversation with Frank, that I just wanted to give a little bit of a disclosure at the beginning. I think one other thing to know is that I usually do a lot of research ahead of time prior to diving into these kinds of conversations. And I did do quite a bit of research, but I read articles about the report this time. I didn't have the time to read the full 17,600 report. And so I was at least making up my decisions and making up my mind as Frank and I had this conversation. So some things might sound a little contradictory, but we really worked them through all the way through. So I just want to make sure that I say that. So if you listen to the first 10 minutes and you're like, wait a second, what is that what you say? Like, just listen to the rest. And I actually think that a lot of you appreciate that because it allows you to make up your mind as well. I don't want to tell anyone what to think. I want to provide a few extra things to think about and context and nuance is important. And it's always true that more than one thing can be true and factual at the same time. It can be true that the intentions of the people publishing this research may not be as pure as if they were published in an international news publication, but it also can be true that there's always more to do when it comes to fraud, and especially the last several years with COVID and just all of the ripple effects that had on e-commerce and the tech industry without any real heads up to allow us to prepare for that giant scale, as well as so many other factors, whether they're geopolitical or others, have impacted an uptick in cyber criminal activity. Now, where the line is for each company on where they need to be doing proactively 
it varies. And I think that, again, these are all just lessons that people can learn without necessarily pointing fingers or assigning blame. I also want to point out just two more things. One is that within this conversation, I unintentionally and unplanned dropped a bit of a bomb that I don't think I have shared on the podcast or otherwise about something that I've heard from a handful, a small handful of tech companies, primarily based in Silicon Valley, who have been advised by their legal team not to do anything about fake or fraudulent accounts. And there are some very specific reasons why a legal team would advise this. And I just want to clearly say more than anything that while I will never name which companies those were, those things were told to me in strict confidence, primarily by fraud fighters that were wrestling with decisions that they needed to make based on the things communicated to them from their legal team and or their C-suite executives. But I can assuredly tell you that no one from Square or any of Block's companies were one of my sources for that information. So I think I made that clear in the end, but I just always like to dot my I's and cross my T's. And I think that you, most of you will have a guttural reaction to this justification when you hear it, if this is something you haven't heard before. But I encourage you to think about it as what would you do if that was something that your legal team told you and the justification that they gave? Would you fight it? Do you think you'd have a chance to fight it? Would you go ahead with it? Would you start looking for another job? These are things that fraud fighters have to think about. And as I've said many times, one of the biggest challenges within the fraud industry is not just external challenges. It's not just battles outside of your company. It's battles within your company. When the rest of the company is sold, completely solely focused on the growth and the scalability of your company, and especially when that growth is the core factor in the valuation of a company, there's a lot more things to think about than just protecting your company. And because fraud is subjective and you can't say, hey, all of these are in red blinking lights and they are 1000% fraudulent. They will steal from us. They will steal from our customers. There needs to be compromises within your organization. And it's an internal battle that a lot of us have struggled with. It's an external battle that keeps us awake at night because, again, we aren't just worried about people outside of the company stealing from your organization or from your customers. You're battling within your company and having to choose your battles and having to find compromises. So I just kind of wanted to make sure that I point that out prior to you hearing this. I just I really encourage you to be curious about it and think about it. It's something that I think is important to talk about. It's an important angle that most of us wouldn't think of. And every once in a while, someone will say, I don't understand why this company or that company doesn't close all these accounts that we can 100% certainty see that they don't have good intentions. This might be why. And then lastly, I just wanted to say that I am extremely grateful to get to know and get to work with some really incredible people on the fraud fighting side. And when we talk about a large organization, in my mind, I'm not criticizing the fraud department because I know that the risk and fraud team do so much and that there is so many things that never come to the surface that are taken care of whenever possible. Because again, like I said, you as a fraud department can be doing everything you possibly can. 
but there's just so many other factors at play, especially for everyone within the risk and the AML team at Block with the various organizations that make up Block. I just hope that you all know that this was not in any way me or Frank wanting to at all criticize you for your role. It's more about talking about how companies are dealing with these challenges, the challenges of so many accounts that are created for nefarious means and the challenges with platforms that have very legitimate uses and have a lot of legitimate customers will always be exploited. And so it's just an opportunity to talk about it. I just want to make sure that I convey as much as possible. It's not personal. I happen to know that there is so many things. Fraud fighting is like an iceberg, right? People can only see just the top amount of what is done or not done, and they never get to see just how much you stopped. Gosh, I'm really conflating analogies here, but I also used to joke that fighting fraud was kind of like dusting, right? People don't always notice when you do it, but they notice when you don't do it or when it's just not done. And that doesn't mean that there's any fault to blame, but because there are rare examples of that publicly, I think it's really important to talk about it. And lastly, for those of you listening to this, I just, like I said, I challenge you to listen to the whole conversation and think what you would do in these situations. Think about how, what you can take from this from your own organization. Is this a conversation you can have with your leadership of, hey, even though there aren't regulations here, this is something that we should probably just be aware of that can happen. Is there something, even if your company is a completely different business model, is there a talking point that, you know, Frank and I mentioned, or is there something that can help you learn about another perspective you just hadn't thought of before? In talking to a lot of you, I think you enjoy listening to these and being a fly on the wall in these conversations as we're working it out and talking things through. But again, before we dove into the conversation, I just wanted to give a few caveats, not only because I wanted to make sure that I dotted my I's and crossed my T's, but also just so that you are listening to this conversation, knowing that neither one of us had our minds made up at the very beginning of this. More than one thing can be true at once. All right, guys, I'm going to let you finally listen in on this conversation that I had with Frank McKenna. I think you'll find it enlightening and insightful, and I look forward to talking to you more on Thursday. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack. 
for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Well, whenever big news happens in fraud, I often want to talk about it with one of my favorite people in the fraud industry, and I have a handful of them who I'm so grateful will come on Fraudology and talk about fraud news with me. And today, one of those people has joined me, and that is Frank McKenna, the brilliance behind the Frank on Fraud blog, as well as co-founder of Point Predictive. And Frank, thank you so much for joining me again on Fraudology. I love it. I love coming on this. I feel like we could do a five-hour podcast Easy. and probably <laughs> whatever you want to talk about anytime. So I know. I'm really happy to be here. It's always so hard because it's hard when we have time constraints because I'm like, I just want to talk to Frank. Oh, yeah, we need to do work. Yeah, the podcast always end up going for a couple hours preamble and then we actually do the podcast. Yeah, but this time we were good. Like, it was like... Yeah. 20 minutes because or mostly just because I want to be respectful of your time so you can get home at some point. But I, I think the last time you were on the podcast was with Marianne talking about 2023 yeah. predictions. And I think that we had talked about having you both back in June to talk about how those are going. And that's something that I haven't even really thought about lately. So I know a few of them have come true, but that'll be a yeah. fun, fun conversation. I wanted to bring you on because actually you... You broke the news to me because you're one of my main news sources in the morning and like even more than NBC or CNN or whatever else there is. What does that say about my interest? But there was a report published last week about fraud on Cash App. And I wanted to talk to you about it because I think we all have a lot of thoughts. I don't think anyone and you actually started out your article saying this. I don't think anyone that was in fraud prevention was surprised by the by the general tone or the general findings in Mm -hmm. the report, which is a bummer for me. I feel like I have to say off at the top that I know several people in the fraud department at Block in general. Some work more on the square side, some work more on the cash up side, on the afterpay side. We're talking about this because it's in the news, right? We'd never blast anyone if there wasn't. But can you share a little bit about the report and who, who did the report and maybe just start us off there? Yeah, I think that morning when I saw that Hinde, it's Hindenburg Research. And if you what a have name. heard of Hindenburg Research, <laughs> they are pretty well known as being short sellers that seem to have a knack for finding fraud. And huh. they have, for example, I think Nicola was a famous example where yep. they felt like Nicola was committing some fraud. That um, was I the guess, electric truck company, the right? Elect- truck going yeah. down the hill instead of driving that they it actually wasn't working but they just rolled it down the hill to get investment mm-hmm. there was the adani group out of india which was another significant fraud that they've exposed and i think there's another one called lordstown motors same thing i think that might have been an electric car or something yeah but they just have a knack for looking and finding cases of fraud they write a report 
with the intent of informing people and then, but on the flip side of making money off it. So they're actually profiting off these reports, which for a lot of people calls into question the legitimacy of the reports. I think in their defense, though, what they typically write about where there's smoke, there's fire. And in many cases, they've been right. So they put this report out. It was like on a Monday morning. I saw it and I was immediately like, whoa, this is probably one of the stories of the year. If it's true, and there was a lot of explosive allegations in this, the hmm. thing that caught my eye kind of goes back to the podcast we have about predictions. One of the predictions <laughs> was there's going to be a big, probably recognition of fake accounts, right? Yep. You're talking about fake accounts in fintech. And to mm. me, this was the headline to me when I opened it up, the first bullet point in their report, I think said something to the effect like, People within Cash App, former employees in the accounts that they reviewed, 40 to 70%, 75% of those accounts mm-hmm. were either fake, involved fraud, or were duplicates. And to me, that was what many have always thought is like how much of this fintech growth is being fueled not by legitimate customers, mm-hmm. but by products that flock to these products to make in perpetrate their bad deeds, whatever those are, whether it's money laundering or fraud or scams, they just love these products that give them easy access to money and crypto. And hmm. I think that's what caught my eye about it. Again, it was all allegations, right? So Cash App came out and said, hey, this is false. There's no systematic fraud and we're going to fight it out in court. So, hey, this would be something we're going to have to follow. This story's not over. Right. It's probably just... Yeah. And... Talking a little bit about the source, being a short seller, it first reminded me of the TV show Billions on Showtime. I don't know if you ever got into that, but yeah, they definitely did some things behind the scenes to find out dirt about public companies so that they can announce it and Uh make money off of betting against them, essentially. I've never been one to really play in the stock market, partially because I'm so afraid I'd be, I don't know accused of insider trading or something because I know so many secrets about new products and things like that. But general funds are are different, right, than like day trading. And that's not something I'm into, but just don't have the time to day trade, but or the risk tolerance. (laughs) I guess that's not really in our DNA, right? I tried not day trading, but every time I buy a stock, it goes down. So I just (laughs) completely given up. My husband, (laughs) we'll just go with whatever our, yeah, Yeah. our 401k and our financial investors. I'm horrible at it. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I was thinking about the source as well. And I feel like it's almost one of those things where it's, yes, where there's smoke, where there's fire. I think that accountability is good. Mm -hmm. Is there, is this a mean, do the ends justify the means? And I think that there's some lessons that broad leaders can take from this to communicate to their leadership, right? That we might, there may not be regulations that we're violating, or maybe there are, but there can be other sources who will benefit or are incentivized to invest in a two-year-long investigation, which most journalists couldn't do and get funding for to do that. I guess my one question though is because these are all alleged and things like that, and I think obviously take things with a grain of salt and say how much of this is blown out of proportion, et cetera. But I don't know if they needed journalistic integrity to release this report. Whereas if it were in the Washington Post or the New York Times or a credible news source, The Guardian, something like that, like it would have to be verified a lot. And that was one concern I had. Yeah. And I think these people... 
These are former employees. A lot uh-huh. of these allegations by former employees. <laughs> Those former employees, it was also carefully worded, right, too. Yeah. The statement that said the 40 to 75% of accounts were fake, it Rich. said huh? the 40 to 75% of the accounts they, they reviewed. reviewed. I right? noticed that, yep. So that's very carefully worded. That doesn't mean that 40 to 75% of Cash App accounts are fake. Right. That means these people who may have been fraud analysts, mm-hmm. what they were looking at, a vast majority were fraud. And you'd expect they would have a somewhat targeted sample if they're in yes. fraud. They'd be looking at it. So you have to look at it there. But I, point, I was going to point that out too. Yep. Yeah, that's a very, very yeah. I think they weren't necessarily, there was a journalistic integrity, but they were carefully worded to be, it was a little sensationalized. However, I do believe that, I go back to where there's smoke, there's fire. There have been a lot of indications, it's not a single data point, that Cash App was more so targeted by scammers and fraudsters, had more risk than some of their counterparts. And so I don't know if I would ever allege, because I don't know, that Cash App would be involved in fraud, but they were definitely targeted by fraud. Yes. That I do believe. That's what I want to talk out in a few minutes, because I think there's a line between there. And I don't think that anyone can 100% judge it accurately unless they're internal. <laughs> but my post around this was really about it's not just the bad guys that are guilty of fraud, right? There's a lot of business decisions that happen that sometimes we feel are working against us. But I don't want to get to ahead of myself, you mentioned how they're structured compared to their counterparts. And I want to give a big shout out to our friend Gil Rosenthal and friend of the podcast. He posted on LinkedIn the other day and I really, this was something that I didn't know, right? Because I'm not on the fintech side like Gil is. He talked about how the way that they are set up, they are really the main, the primary use by bad actors, or I don't like the term, but cyber criminals to exploit Cash App is for exit accounts. Mm. And the way that Gil phrases it is once a bad actor manages to exploit a victim or get past the first line of defense of a financial institution, they often try to quickly send the money to another financial instrument that is in their complete control and allows them easy access to the money. So they're trying to basically cash out, right? And yeah. given the relatively more relaxed account opening controls, certainly compared to established banks, there's not that that's one of the business propositions of Cash App as well as Square for payment processing is there's a lot less underwriting. It doesn't take as long. We can do so much more digitally, et cetera. Yeah. And he goes on to say, given relatively more relaxed account opening controls compared to banks and other fintechs. And since you can push funds to it very easily and take money out of it very easily, Cash App is a prime target for bad actors looking for a temporary destination for their illegitimately att- obtained funds. Yeah. And that's why you can see it linked. We saw it, I think, the it biggest is. use we saw at first was unemployment and P-fraud because yep. Jack Dorsey even came out and did a tweet about that saying, hey, you don't even need another bank account to verify the, who you are or that your your credit worthiness. Okay. Just come to Cash App and you can receive unemployment funds there. And I'm sure that his intentions were pure. He was thinking about the underbanked. The problem is a lot of the financial products that are appealing to the underbanked are also often very appealing to fraudsters. Yeah, because the same, you don't have the same controls to look at the history and right. all of the things that you can determine if someone's being truthful or not. Yeah. Yeah. There's no history with a other bank. You're not bringing in your bank statements. You're not often don't 
have credit good or even any credit. So yep. they're basically saying if you have a name and email address and address, and I don't know what all the things they're checking, know there's more than that. Yep. But we do know that it has been very targeted with fake accounts. And sure. just moving on really quickly to the other competitors in the market, especially sure. in the US, but I know that a lot of these are global. This is what really I thought was interesting. In addition to what you said about exit accounts, mm-hmm. as with many other cases before, before this is a fraud story, it's a product and a market story. And that's something that Gil and I talked about on a podcast episode last summer about how he sees so many things being more about product and the market than on how products are set up than just a yeah. fraud problem. And I couldn't agree more. I think you agree too. So he said, cash out's two main real-time payments. Competitors are Venmo and Zelle. Yep. Venmo is a closed network. It only allows you to receive and send money to other Venmo accounts yep. or to your own financial instrument, your own account that you've added to your wallet. It can be your own debit card or your own bank account, something like that, that you've added to your wallet. It allows a much stronger measure of control over suspicious transactions, and it makes it harder to get money out. It's not impenetrable, but just harder as an exit account. So because you can't send money from another bank account or outside, the person sending the money to the other Venmo account has to be in the network. You are very much relying on Venmo's, uh, their KYC and everything else and how they're getting their customers. But And we know that PayPal and Venmo had issues of fake accounts last year with the 4.5 million, but, and they're going to be targeted for other types of fraud, but not as much about exit fraud. So then Zelle is a partially closed network since you can only send and receive funds to participating bank accounts, which requires obtaining a bank account you control that. So if you were to do create an exit account, it would have to be a bank account that you control, but it isn't in your name, which is a slightly harder challenge because they're with established banks. And then Cash App, on the other hand, is a fully open network and you can send funds to it via ACH the same way you can to any other bank account. But opening a Cash App account is much easier compared to Zelle, for example. You don't need, a, like we said, we don't need a bank account. And taking money out of it is also easier compared to standard bank accounts in Venmo. So I thought there were so many good points there. Yeah, that was really thoughtful, like analysis of the situation and fair to Cash App. I think if you look at Cash App versus Venmo, I think absolutely that is 100% correct. There's just a different ecosystem. There's different risk. But you also... Yeah, and to be fair, they all have their own risks for fraud. Like we have talked, we talked about Zelle in the last episode that we did together. It is not like Cash App's the only one. It's just they're different types. And because there's different types, there's different risks and different ways to know that they're fraudulent too, right? That's right. That's right. I think what gets me about Cash App, because I go back... it's good that, you know, that I don't think it's a complete sham. Right? I think what's no. happening is that Cash App is a riskier environment. The controls are not enough to make it a product that is, no. is really where it should be. And let me give you some stats that I was looking at last night because I was like, what is the rate of fights? Because there's no industry stat of it. What's the rate of fraud on Zelle? Although we actually do know it now. It's about seven basis points, according to Zelle. What's the rate of fraud That's on Venmo? Don't get and cash up, we don't get. But so I started to look at the complaints that go into the Better Business Bureau. Interesting. And it's super shocking to me, not maybe not shocking, but surprising the level of complaints between the three companies that come from consumers. So 
in the last 12 months, Zell has 226 complaints to the Better Business Bureau about That's their it? product. Wow. That's it. All right. Venmo, 1,963, eight times more than Zell. Hmm. Consumers are complaining about getting not getting their money back or whatever their complaints are. Cash App, 3,901 complaints. That's 20 times the level of complaints to the Better Business Bureau than Azelle. And again, I go back to where there's smoke, there's fire. That's one more signal saying, Cash App, you got to do better. That's an indicator that Cash App should have known. And I think that's really what we want to get at is part of me when I read that from Gil was, okay, if it's exit accounts, then there's really no corresponding loss indicator, right? Because there's not a corresponding loss indicator to Cash App. And what I mean by that is in e-commerce, we have chargebacks, right? So that's what's going to get a company to care is, oh, when there's fraud on our platform, the issuing bank takes that money back. And oftentimes it's higher dollar transactions than typical because people are funding other people's money, plus fees and fines. Yep. When there's banking fraud, when there's Zelle fraud, especially, that's what I'm surprised that Zelle has so few. There's consumers, they may be involved in the transaction, but oftentimes they're scammed by an outside yeah. party. Yeah. And they often feel like, hey, Zelle, you should have told us, you should have known this, right. you should have seen it. So there's different, you have customer complaints, right? When you have a yeah. lot of exit accounts, when you have a lot of an e-commerce, I know a lot of triangulation fraud goes to Cash App, there was P, unemployment, et cetera. Yep. There's not, because of the ACH system, there are reversals, but depending on the time frame, they're very, they're a lot yeah. harder to do than a credit card. So right. I guess what I'm saying is I don't know how much money Cash App has lost because of fraud. So yep. if they haven't lost money because of fraud, what are those other indicators that should have told them that there was smoke? Got one. BBB. I got that yeah. one. Here's another one. Fast money equals fast fraud. Let's rewind to 2019 before the pandemic and look at Cash App revenue. 1.3 billion. That's pretty healthy. 1.3 billion. Pandemic hits in 2020. The revenues go to 6 billion. 2021, the revenues go to 12.3 billion. So this in a period of two years, by the way, 80% of that is Bitcoin revenue. Wow. So here is an indication that you're growing by leaps and bounds. And I think this is what initially caught Kindenberg's line of sight is mm -hmm. this really stratospheric growth. Then you have all these complaints going in. You have all these warning signs that you've got something going on that isn't normal. And so I think that stratospheric revenue growth in a two-year time period should have been a clue. Or maybe everyone loved that revenue so much that maybe fraud was a, a second afterthought. And sure. being a fraud, and you know this, right? I know this. Being a fraud person when you're going against the world, nobody's, you can be the best fraud person, but if you can't convince anybody to do the right thing, you are... You're just like a figurehead. So who knows? Like maybe there were fraud people there that were saying, hey, so already 70% of what I'm looking at is fraud and everybody's, yeah, but we're making 12 billion. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I meant, right? When the money is coming in and there's not a lot of money going out because of fraud, what's the impetus? What's the thing that's going to exactly. make the company to invest in it? And here's the other reason why would that also mostly usually works against fraud and trust and safety groups for online companies. And I've been ranting about this for, I don't know, at least a year. It was actually, I think, one of the most 
quote unquote viral posts I ever did. And it, yeah. I didn't even have any thought into it. It's been an open secret for so long. I just thought everyone knew that the fact that valuations for tech companies are based on number of users and not the quality of users, it's the quantity. There's a disincentive or there for companies to monitor accounts and to not police fake accounts. Right. There's several very big name companies I can think of in Silicon Valley who have purposely told their fraud and trust and safety teams, you cannot touch account opening. I don't care if once they do a transaction or once they try to transfer money, if don't let them do that. But we need those numbers. Even if you can tell it's a bot, even if you can tell it's completely fake and fraud or identity theft, I don't care. You cannot touch account opening. And the problem is up until recently with some of the newer technology out there, at least in e-commerce, and I know banking is similar too, right? You're often looking at the monetary actions. And so usually you have account opening, you have account login, which kind of gives you some signals, and then you have checkout. That's it. So if you can't look at where they start, where all the signals that come with account opening, which are quite yeah. rich and can tell you if that person is a real person and all of that, depending on right. your risk stack, then you're just tying your hands by and you have to catch it later upstream. Right. But the valuation, you think about it, a couple billion dollars in valuation is going to be a lot more money than a million or two in fraud. But isn't that a definition of a Ponzi scheme where you're basically <laughs> frauding the investors, taking, if you ask me? You're, yeah, you're taking and you're taking investors money to turn it into fake accounts to sell that to other investors later. Maybe the public. Not it's good. not honest and it's not and it's definitely not quality. Right. But I don't I hesitate to say that I don't I can think of very few companies that are tech first companies whose valuations are based on their number of users that have put in a lot of things in place to have quality accounts unless yeah. they're regulated, right? Unless it's something around banking and they have to do IDs, even then I had David Myman on the podcast last two weeks ago and we know that IDs are so easily, there's so many things wrong with them. Now you can get legitimate driver's licenses in someone right. else's name. In Texas. And yeah, yeah. Or yeah, there's a few of them. There's a few right. states that's easy, right? And with your picture on it. So now we're depending on IDV verification that doesn't isn't going to catch something that's actually from a true department of licensing. The account opening piece is so difficult, but there's not a ton. Yeah, you've got fraud people that really want to put those things in place, but you're up against the rest of the business. The rest of the business is like, hey, our valuation, our stock options, our everything. Our the, bonuses. The amount, yeah, our bonuses, the amount of exit we can have if we IPO or if we get acquired. All of that is based on our valuation. Don't F with our valuation. Right. That's- yeah, fraud people are not going to be very popular in a rapidly growing <laughs> environment like that. I think... Yeah, I've I been that- the fraud therapist to many of them. <laughs> yeah, it's the endless battle. I think this is another one. I think that a little shocking, but yeah, this report I think was... This is, I don't know if I'd call it the story of the year, but it certainly is going to be one of the big ones of the year. I think this one. To us, it's fraud. But yeah, you and I were talking about right before we were recording. And the interesting thing is that the, uh, you know, the goal of Hindenburg Research of publishing this was to tank the stock, right? They short sold the stock 
And it didn't go down that much. It was less than 20%. Granted, it wasn't just the stock for Cash App. Block is comprised of Cash App and Square and Afterpay. So that's, you're really only looking at one third. So maybe if it was just Cash App's stock on the stock market, maybe that would have been a 60% dip. It's hard to know, but it's just... Yeah, it, it's we a, it care is. about it, but I don't know how much everyone else cares about it, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, that's right. But, but, yeah, but, I think maybe it is. It didn't have an impact. But when I see things like in the report, you know, there was some just really interesting things, some interesting quotes like every, yeah. every criminal has a square cash app account. Am I shocked at that? No. In fact, I think that well, might be true. Because is it underreporting? I don't I'm know. sorry, cash app. I'm so sorry, block. Like I'm. <laughs> I know I really like you guys as people and I know a lot of you have tried. I also know that I know a lot more than I'm sharing on the podcast about history of people who have overseen that department over the huh. years. But I know that not it's I don't a think lot. It's, yeah, yeah, it's hard. Like I said, a lot of times in the fraud department for a fast growing company, you're seen as chicken little. You're seen as like the really annoying person who's right. saying, excuse me, these have to be right. And you're like, wait, right. you're standing in the way of us making right. a billion dollars shop and go but, block in well, the corner, <laughs> the closet. Maybe to your point, though, they're still seen as chicken little, right? This is these comments when I, I've gotten a few comments like, hey, these are just random employees mm. making comments. But these employees, I don't doubt what they're saying. I don't doubt that if somebody in the fraud department would say that and go, man, every single criminal is tied to a cash app account. And they had other ones like, I can't remember what it was, but it was like, it's wide open. If I yeah. was a criminal, I would have done it too. It's wide open. I've, I mean, I've seen that phrase in a lot of criminal forums, not just about cash app, but definitely one of them. That's what they say. It's wide open means like, go to town. And I think it's been for different things. But I think another challenge is that Cash App has been enabling so many other frauds, right? Mm -hmm. There's so many other, really what we're talking about when we say exit accounts is that's money coming from online companies from triangulation fraud. That's money coming from banks and from crypto fraud and from all these other, from scams. And it's all, or the US government, it's all being filtered through this platform and it's enabling, if it wasn't yeah. so easy to cash out of cash app, would other companies have as much fraud? Yeah, it's part it's of the, the ecosystem. ecosystem. There you go. Yeah, and I think some points that other people had made, I think on posts was there's MoneyGram, there's Gold, Green Dot, Western Union. So a lot of, I think cash app might oh. be pulling in a lot of the fraud that might have been going to those types of companies mm, and they're the right. new because I those think. companies have been in the news in the past yeah for enabling enabling slash just being targeted to be used for fraud and for profiting off of fraud yeah in the past it it was wire transfer companies and then it was prepaid the cards run. and now the it's interesting thing right because yeah. it also those companies at some point had to invest a ton of money in Uh risk and fraud to get their reputation back and get their trust back, not just with their users, but with their investors. So maybe... Maybe maybe, that's silver lining here. Maybe... I'm just saying that accountability is going to be the silver lining, right? That is what I would want to see. The one other thing I wanted to point out too, as far as like things like that is you and I have talked in the past and I think on a past episode, it's hard though. I think we're at like episode 183. So it's hard to remember everything. But I know. You can put so much work into this. 
a lot of talking. We know I'm good at that. Yeah. But scam rap, right? Like scam rap is such a big thing in the scam culture. And and I know in this report, it talks about just how many times Cash App was mentioned, right? In hundreds of hip hop songs on YouTube where they're claiming to use Cash App to profit off of everything from drug trafficking to prostitution to paying hitmen. Because again, like it's a place that you can, Mm -hmm. that criminals have found is fairly easy to open an account and then take money out. You send money to that account and take it out. So cash out. And what also I thought was like, I face palmed a little bit was specifically Jack Dorsey, who I used to look up to so much. And I still do, but especially when he went from starting Twitter to Square, I actually once got to see him twice in one day because I was at both of those companies in the same day and he was too. Apparently Tuesdays were his day to go through the office and he'd go to Square in the morning and Twitter in the afternoon. And that was on my calendar for the day too. So I literally physically ran into him once in the very old, very first building of Square. It was like run down, very scrappy startup. And they moved to a very fancy one, sharing a building with Uber. But and then later that day, I saw him walk through the cafeteria of Twitter and I was like, I should buy a lottery ticket. Like, I just wow, this guy. Oh, that was 10 years ago. But still, so I have respect for people. But it's interesting because the report noted that Dorsey bragged about the app's popularity with music artists at a JP Morgan investor conference in May 2020 and again in 2021. So they're only rapping about them for profiting off of drug trafficking and prostitution and hitmen and financial scams and fraud. So did he listen to those songs or was he just told by somebody in his PR department, hey, somebody ran an algorithm and found that Cash App's so popular, people just love it for legitimate things. The fact that he knew that, that makes me, I guess I've been wrestling in my head. I don't think he listened to him. I think he just probably not, but why would you brag about that? But with critical thinking, you'd think, wow, nobody raps about their bank that much. Like, why would they unless they were doing, you know, because a lot of those scam raps are methods, right? They're just, it's not even good rap. I am a product of 90s hip hop, so I (laughs) consider myself a little bit of a connoisseur on rap. It's not good and it's mostly methods. You open an account with this and you do this and you move this here and you use a fake this and you do that. Like, that's what's in these rap songs. So I guess I just don't understand why anyone would think, oh, people just really like our financial product so much that they're mentioned in hundreds rap. of rap. That's <laughs> a great payment platform. Yeah. PayPal hasn't been rapped about that much. It certainly is mentioned. But I guess, like, why would you brag about that? I don't know. And maybe it was just a headlight he thought was cool. But also, yeah. why didn't JP Morgan Chase go, Huh, who raps about why isn't anybody rapping about us? Maybe we should check out some of these songs. What do they like about them so much? How yeah. can we get ra- oh, this is all fraud? Maybe we shouldn't invest. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's true. I worked for a company. We had a in the early days of e commerce, this is back in 1997, 1998. <laughs> internet was just coming out and we launched an internet division and mm. it was really taken off. And we were touting it as a company. This is our high growth division. And then they wanted me to start consulting because I was a fraud consultant. They said, we have a couple of our customers that are really experiencing a lot of fraud. And then so I went to the customer and it was a very bizarre experience because it was actually a payment aggregator of all these porno sites. So I was actually asked to consult for how to reduce the fraud of this digital fraud. And then I learned that 
our executives didn't understand like 90% of our business was like gambling sites and porn mm. sites. So those are all high risk for credit card payments. High risk, but also <laughs> not the type of stuff you want to be like, we're a public company and this is our. Oh, right. Yeah. So I don't think, because they didn't mm. understand like the custody, really what's happening. I think that happened with There's the, a lot of cognitive yeah. dissonance. Yeah. <laughs> it happens a lot with marketplaces as well okay. as platforms and others where they may not understand that. There's there's actually a very successful, they call themselves a web streaming company that has had some open positions lately. And I'm very familiar with them because they are based in the city I've lived in for 15 years. And they, yeah, they have a few openings now. And a few people have asked me like, wow, this company's huge, but very careful about how they raise themselves. But it's all web webcam streaming, but they do billions of dollars. Like at one point they were processing, this was several years ago, I think seven, eight, nine years ago, they were processing as much as Amazon at the time in payments. Yeah. And the thing is they have barely any chargebacks. So yeah, some of these got barely any, partially because it's like an addiction, right? Nobody wants to shut it off. But also it's fascinating. You would think that. But yeah, I guess that actually brings me to something else because I've been trying to kind of reason in my head because there's been some people who have been critical as far as, yeah, this was an open secret in all of fraud prevention that cash app. And again, they're not the only ones, but they're the ones in this headline and in this report. So that's why we're you know talking about them this much that they were complicit, right? There's been people saying, hey, if everyone in the fraud industry knew about it, why didn't you speak up? Why wasn't it? Who are we supposed to tell? There's no mayor of the internet. But I know that I've had multiple conversations with different companies that, you know, that will have a very large attack and other people in the industry will know about it. But then oftentimes there's some factor that causes, and that's why I was talking about those corresponding loss rates. There's something that allows the fraud department to say, hey, this is why you need to care. Yeah. You need to care because we're losing money. You need to care because there's a regulation. I don't know much about anti-money laundering laws, but I certainly am not sure. I know that there's a team there that works hard to be compliant, but I, I don't know anything about that. But one of the things I do also know, like a little dirty little secret I've learned from friends that work for tech Dirty companies in paper. Silicon Valley. I know it's, it's <laughs> I know I'm not attaching this to any one company because I've actually heard this more than a few times, but there have been cases, especially when there aren't high dollar losses where executives and or legal departments will instruct a fraud team not to cancel anything within a certain bucket. Because that takes away their plausible deniability. Wow. So if you think about in a case of whether it's a payment platform like this, whether it's social media, whether it's, it's a platform that's used by a lot of people and often for good, but sometimes for bad, whether that's user generated content or whether that's reviews or whether that's the posts or whether that's money being moved around and the legal team will say, hey, or so somebody in the front of it will say, we have a really big problem with this. We have a really big problem with fake accounts. We have a really big problem with this. And when legal sits down, they say, are there any regulations that it's breaking? No, not really. Oh. How much money are we losing? Not as much as we're making off of it. Okay, then don't you dare cancel a single one so that if the government comes to us and says, hey, this is happening, you can say, it is? 
Oh, Fine. we didn't know because we didn't. But if you canceled some of them, then they could go back and say, you obviously knew this was happening because you canceled some of them in that are related and that have similar DNA. Legal dilemma. Maddening. Yeah, as somebody, and I think most of us in fraud fighting have a strong sense of justice, not just isolated to people who <laughs> steal payment methods and identities yeah. and who create synthetic identities. Well, that's very why, frustrating. That's why synthetic is America's fastest growing crime, because mm-hmm. a lot of companies that pointing any in particular, I think it's probably the norm. I don't. I think the outlier are people that actually will decline all the synthetic identities. I think a lot of yeah, people... Sure. See synthetic identity as a profitable segment. They'll keep those accounts. What happens with that? It's like a cancer because they go and they said, I got a credit card account using a CPN or a stolen social. And then that just feeds on itself and everybody does it. And that's why synthetic is such a big problem. It's not hard to identify, but getting people to actually do something about and many, I scream about it, you scream about it. Oh, yeah. But. We don't even eat ice cream about it. Sorry. Maybe (laughs) we should eat some ice cream about it. But yeah, 100%. Yeah. Synthetic just keeps going. And David Myman was talking about that when his research at Georgia State with his evidence-based research cybersecurity group, where it's, they're just seeing tons and tons of synthetics grown and built. And that's partially why we saw so much fraud around SVB. I just did an episode yep. on that for last Thursday about all these business accounts that have just been growing and being aged to look yep. legitimate. And as soon as you see something like this, you can, up oh, all of a sudden this business needs a bank account. We're going to slide on in yeah. knowing that there's so many new accounts, yeah. way more new accounts in business than ever, than any bank usually sees in a day. Yeah. And we're going to slide in. We had the yeah. same in 90. I was a fraud analyst. It was my first jobs. <laughs> and I was... In charge of looking at our secured card portfolio at this bank, and it was growing like crazy. And I nobody can understand why is our yeah. secured card credit card performing they have to pay so like a deposit, pay, basically, a deposit. right? Yeah, in an account. I was like, right. why would anybody do this? This is like <laughs> right. a dumb product. But we had the astronomical acceptance of this product, and so I started to go in because I started to see a lot of them were like taking out the line of credit, and then they'd mail us a check for a thousand or two thousand dollars way over the credit limit. Uh-huh. And then they'd go out and they take the money out again and again. They were kiting and they were getting we gave them a five hundred dollar line of credit and they were getting like four and five thousand dollars off this line of credit with by mailing in bad checks and oh, checking out. Wow. Right. So they'd be making a payment on it. Yeah. But then yeah, but and it would take so long for the yeah. It would take so were, long for the money to yeah. realize it wasn't yep. So they get they gave us five hundred and then we paid them out five five thousand or ten thousand on credit lines, but I started to go in and I did an analysis on five hundred accounts. I remember I went in and I did a call to the social search at the time, and what I found is that forty percent of that portfolio, the social security numbers didn't belong to the customer. So I was like. And I was in 1990. Wow. 1990. Right. And I was, it wasn't called synthetic back then. It was just, I called it like, we need to do a social security verification. (laughs) But everybody was like, no, that's okay because we're getting the deposit and we're having no risk. And I was like, you got to check these social security numbers. Right. Because they're going over limit and (laughs) they never. So this is going on like, now this with 20, they're almost 30 years ago. Wow. We call it the old social security fraud, eh? 
whatever. It was not synthetic. And that's something David Maiman and I talked about this quite a bit, just about how the American system was not set up with the internet and identity theft and synthetic fraud in mind. And it's so easy to get for instance, so easy to get a utility bill. You use the utility bill to get a driver's license and to get a social security card. Now you can start building credit. And there's no, there's not as many stops in place at the very beginning. And everybody's yeah. trusting everyone else. So many businesses rely on each other and they're trusting that everyone else is doing their due diligence and starting with the government, which I mean, talk about a four hour episode. That could, you know, really twist. Gosh, you were getting so many good points. But I wanted to just close out on is what do we think that Cash App can do to be better? So if they take this report, I know that they're saying that they're going to file with the SEC and they're going to do due diligence and they're going to fight these claims. And they certainly can. I think they're they would have to prove, though, in court that a lot of these things aren't true. And I do, I think there is one piece about the report that just gets me, and you mentioned it earlier, but I just kind of wanted to circle back on it really fast, is when they say former employees, that's very vague. And when they say former fraud employees, that's very vague. How senior were they? Because uh-huh. again, to your point, 40 to 75% of the accounts they reviewed were fake. Yeah, when you are a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you're a fraud analyst, And your system filters out 98% of all orders because they all look really good or really bad. And you're just looking at that gray area. Yeah. Yeah, that's normal, right? I I think any fraud analyst could say that at almost any company, at a bank or e-commerce. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's a pretty good. I know that their machine learning models are pretty dang good. I've actually had their head of machine learning. Actually, he was on the square side, but head of machine learning and data science for risk for Square on the podcast several months ago. Yeah, he was supposed to come back, but I've lost touch with him. But that's either here nor there, but very brilliant. So I know that their systems work well. So anyway, I feel like any Friday analyst can say that, right? So I would, that's what I meant by like journalistic integrity, right? Like they're not naming the employees. Not to say that Friday analysts don't see a good part of the picture, But how far up the chain were they talking to, right? Because obviously people that are higher up in fraud leadership would be able to say, yes, but look at all this that we stopped. Yeah. Because I know they are stopping a lot. No doubt. Yeah, they're probably stopping a lot. I think. But it is difficult with an exit account, right? Because you don't have the information that the bank is that the bank has, right? So you don't know who owns that bank account that's sending it in. You don't know. I guess you could with some technology. So how much due diligence are you doing? I think that really what, if I were advising them, I would say, I think it's time to do some very honest auditing of (laughs) your different issues and to talk to other companies that are saying, hey, we saw fraud through Cash App. And certainly every state in the US would say that the cash app routing number was quite popular during unemployment fraud time. I know that from experience. We saw that in real time where somebody yeah. posted in Telegram, hey, they were switching from different routing numbers to different routing numbers. And this was one of the ones that was easy in their mind. They just skyrocketed. So we had to block that with the very rudimentary tools they had. But yeah, so talking with other companies, looking at the models and, and saying, what are all the ways that people can defraud us? And maybe we need to, you know, oh. maybe... We need to patch up these holes, whether they're beneficial for our valuation or not, because at some point it's going to be about customer trust and investor trust. I think they're going to have to show that, too, because I imagine this is going to get attention from regulators. Yeah, Um, I would assume so. Yeah. And I would think that if this does go to court, a lot of this is going to come out. I think what can they do? What you just said is perfect. Is let's look at 
all the processes, figure out where we have holes. All the warning signs are there, whether it's in the videos or what the former employees were saying or what the on the BBB mm. or on their stratospheric growth. There's indications there. There's Listen to the rap songs that you're bragging yeah. that you're in. <laughs> yeah, you're inordinately being targeted by fraudsters. It's a brand reputation thing. Mm. Maybe there's no loss, but the brand needs to be refurbished in a, from a safety, a trust and safety perspective. Yeah. Investment, hiring really good people that uh, know this, investing in some I technology. I care about to be listened to. Yeah. I know there's been a fair amount of turnover at several different in the Valley, not yeah. just this one. And sometimes it's because the fraud leader cares too much. And sometimes it's because the fraud leader cares too little. And it's, it's like Goldilocks and the three frauders. I don't know. There was some simple things in the report too that I one uh, that I caught my eye was like at Cash App, you could, you could, they would close down the account, but they would never put you on the negative file. Wow. I didn't get a chance to read the full report, but that's yeah. crazy. But yeah, TJ, wow. TJX, Six, I think the scam rapper. Yeah. And one of his things was, hey, I can, they shut me down in Cash App. I changed my phone and I get another one. So they wow. are not basically looking at the identity Bizarre. of the individual. And the onboarding is probably lacking. And a lot of those controls of finding the frequent bad actors. Another thing is all the sex trafficking and yeah. things like that, where the, Activity is very noticeable. Lots of transactions in the middle of the night, mm -hmm. lots of travel all over the place. Oh, yeah. I worked this. for an online travel company. Yeah. You can spot that very easily. You can spot it. They should probably, a lot of that, they have to repair uh -huh. the brand somewhat because regardless of the Hindenburg report, the perception among people in the fraud industry and others yeah. and, is that- yeah. Their yeah. friends and family and other people too. Yeah, law enforcement, banks. Yeah. They have a perception of being the worst of the three. That's not... And also with the BDB, if you think that those are just a fraction, if there's 10 times as many of those as there is Zell, it's like, yeah, or actually no, 20 times more than Zell. If there were about 4,000 complaints, that's a percentage, right? That's a small percentage of yeah. the people that have here, had a problem. Here. So you times yeah. that times everyone they told too, right? Yeah. So it's a very large thing. And yeah, the, yeah, you want more legitimate customers. You need to work on your brand because people are never going to do business, especially with their money, with a company that they don't like. And I think if you look at Zelle, I think the Zelle volume is 10 times the level of Cash App. Or, right. You know, it's a far bigger platform. So to have 20 times less complaints and like right. far more volume. Far more volume. Through, That's a very good point. Uh, yeah. it's like a, you have to factor that in. Yeah. And you have to think that at some point, especially with the economy, the way it is that the investors are going to say, hey, we need to tighten down on this. We need to be quality over quantity. I would love to see the tech industry start putting in other measurements for valuation than just number of users because, yeah, I don't know if it's really you're enabling fraud or you're just not doing a lot to, but you're benefiting from it, right? Like you're benefiting from the fake accounts. You're benefiting from that. And it is a form of fraud, but it seems to be okay. Yep. or at least justified in our current tech world. Freak, I wanted to just close out asking you one other question. And that is, what can fraud leaders that you know don't work at Cash App, what can they do with this information? What Bring should they do for 
whether it's talking to their leadership, whether it's, hey, maybe we should, we have a similar platform. Maybe I should yeah. ask other companies what their reception of us are. Maybe I should look at, for some smoke or what. Yeah. What would you recommend? I think this is a good example of fake accounts. I think this is a mm -hmm. big story this year is just what is our exposure here with fake accounts? We now have a bunch of examples. You've got PayPal, they got 4.5 million fake accounts. You now have Cash App where there's allegations of a very high percentage of fake accounts. Mm -hmm. You've got Twitter, right? Elon Musk said 20% of the accounts he thought were bots or fakes. If you're a fintech in another organization, Maybe if you're in the fraud area, you can use this information to say, hey, look at this. This is really important that we not ignore this because this is now an issue and people are looking yes. at it. So yeah. I think this is this could be positive, a positive thing. I, I always try to spin it too. Yeah, that's what I try to do too, right? Whenever there's a breach, whenever there's something in the news, I try to spin it as this is an opportunity to educate your leadership right. and to say, hey, we may not have that many regulations in fintech, even though some fintech companies basically allow the same services as banking and there's a ton of regulations there. But A, we want to do our part so that we can keep benefiting from there not being as many regulations if that's what the company is benefiting from. But B, yeah, there's other forms of accountability, right? And this, while their stock didn't take a huge hit, who knows what the ripple effects will be once mm -hmm. legislatures read the report, once others, as well as the legitimate accounts that go away. I think it can be a lesson, but something to heed a warning. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We should be learning from each other's learning experiences, especially the painful ones, so that we don't have to go through it ourselves, both in work and in life. That's right. You got to use these examples because like you said, a lot of this, there's no loss associated with it. Yeah. So there has to be a impact. The impact is reputation. The impact is regulation. The impact is getting the attention of these But it groups. is a challenge when your legal department says, we have no exposure. You'll have more exposure if you actually start canceling these things and shutting them down. And that's a yeah. rant that I actually don't know if I've shared before on the podcast because there's just some things that don't come up. But it's not because I don't think they're important to divulge, but part of it is wanting to protect sources. But the people who have told me that has happened were not at any block related companies. I feel like yeah. I should say that, but important. they were at other Silicon Valley tech companies and it's been happening for years. There's sure. know, seems to be a band of lawyers that just really don't want fraud departments to do anything. <laughs> All of us in fraud know that sometimes we're fighting the fraudsters and sometimes we're fighting internal voices telling us that to shut up and not care as much more. Right. It's a it's a two sided battle. <laughs> there's an internal battle and then there's the external battle and both can be a battle and can be hard. But we are so passionate and often don't give up that easy and take the wins where we can. Exactly. You got to. Frank, this flew by so fast. Yeah. I appreciate you and your expertise and how much work you put into informing the fraud industry and the even beyond and and for taking time out of your very busy today to talk yeah, to me. No, so I thank you. Appreciate you. I appreciate everything you're doing. I love the podcast and all of the different people you bring on. And it's a real great industry resource and you help so many people yeah. with they they get a lot of value i get a lot of value so thank you for having me on i really appreciate that i yeah i think that as fraud fighters we can feel very lonely and isolated and i want to hear from a lot of feedback 
this podcast helps people feel connected and a little less as the only one. And if that's, if you're, if it's helping you feel that way and you're learning something along the way, then I'll consider that a good day for me. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I can't wait to talk to you soon. And especially mid-year, have you and Marianne back. That will be. Oh, yeah. That'll be really fun. I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be enlightening. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you again. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.